In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Go ahead, just grab whichever. Oh, thank you. Oh my gosh, this sauce is to just die for. I it so good. Woo, I'm glad you like it. My mouth feels good. So happy your mouth feels good. That's the sound of a happy production crew enjoying some indigenous cuisine. Are you going to eat? Yes. Okay. More delicious dishes to come, but here's a sneak eats peek. The menu includes sister squash salmon cannelloni. Say that three times while eating it. Okay. You've heard the phrase, too many cooks in the kitchen? Well, try three producers, two videographers, a host, and a chef all up in our grill. But it was all worth it. I got to make my cooking video debut, and more importantly, share recipes for a happy belly, a healthy body, and a culturally nourished community. Tanse Anin Buju. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Unreserved. We're coming at you from the kitchen. Not my kitchen, but high up in the Toronto CBC studio. I'm Rosanna Deerchild, top chef. That's just chill, man. A few weeks ago, we welcomed a new producer to our team. We're going to let this saute. Aisha Smith Belgaba. Aisha also happens to be a chef. So we're going to add some of these little minties. And it didn't take us long to see her passion for indigenous foods. I grew up in the kitchen with my aunts, my uncles, you know, everybody hunting, gathering, different types of things like that. So every time I think of food, I think of, you know, love and family and bringing people together. And that's just what she's doing today, bringing us all together around some simple and delicious ingredients. While Aisha and I chef it up in the kitchen, she'll introduce us to some fellow foodies in her community of Six Nations. This Mohawk Reserve is teeming with people working to decolonize their diets. I have to get on the land. I have to get out and communicate with people that are doing these things, growing our traditional foods, harvesting our traditional foods, hunting our traditional foods, and fishing, you know, for our traditional foods. Deo Mero connects her career as a dietitian back to the land. And Chandra Miracle uses her research around traditional foods to help new moms. The advice for Indigenous women anywhere would be to start by looking at your traditional diets in general, as long as they're highly nutrient-dense, which most Indigenous foods are anyway. Today, we get to the root of it starting in the kitchen with producer and chef Aisha Smith-Belgaba, where she's showing me some simple ways to prepare pre-contact foods. Okay. 
So we're gonna be doing sweet grass, sweet tea right now. And then moving into is sister salmon ravioli. And also we're gonna be doing a dessert shortly after the tea. And then we're gonna prep it up, put it aside, work on the other, and then come back to you together and we'll enjoy it all at once. Oh man, I can't even wait. <laughs> this is not no uh, craft dinner business going on here. No. Let's start with the sweetgrass tea and the lied corn berry parfait. Okay, so with the sweetgrass sweet tea, you wanna boil however much water you want, and then that determines how many braids you would put into it. So right now we have a pot of water, about three, three and a half liters right here. So we're gonna take our sweet grass, and if you wanna mm, smell it, smell it. It has a very fragrant, light, calming vanilla kind of scent. So we're just gonna put this whole braid in here, and you can put yours in there as well, Rosanna. And then once it's steeped enough inside there, the water will start to change color. The sweet grass will be getting like more vibrant because it's being rehydrated, but it's releasing all of its essential oils and stuff like that. We're also gonna be putting in some dried lavender. Um, so sweet grass is a traditional medicine and it's used to bring sweet things into your life and it's also used sometimes as a grieving tea. Mm. So it's very calming and soothing. So I paired it with the lavender because lavender is also calming and soothing. And you know, life can be stressful and there's nothing like sitting down and having a nice glass of hot tea and you can also have this cold as well. Mm -hmm. um, and just chilling out. Yeah, you can smudge with it. Yeah, also that. <laughs> <laughs> and it keeps your, uh, your soul happy. So we're gonna be cutting an orange. So you want to be careful with the lavender because it's super strong and you don't want to overpower your sweet grass. Right. And then same thing with the oranges as well. The rind has essential oils, there's sugars, the juice is in here, it's all nice, but you got to be sure not to let it steep for too long, then it gets bitter. Right. And we don't want bitter, we're trying to be sweet and happy and nice and calming, you know? Yes. <laughs> Innocent. Innocent. <laughs> So Aisha, when did you become passionate about cooking? Uh, I started cooking when I was five. So <laughs> I was super <laughs> little and young. Um, and my mom was going to university to become a paramedic. So my Nana would watch me all the time. She was my great grandma and just, I would walk across the field and go to her house. Mm -hmm. um, so she'd let me take her pots outside and it started with mud. And then I started adding spices from the kitchen into the mud and my grandma said, you know, that's enough of that. Like, let's be real now. Yeah. So she put me at the stove and I started frying eggs and making soups and baking with her and then also foraging with her as well. So gathering fresh clover, mm -hmm. black walnuts when the season was around, which is right now in fall time. Mm. So it's always been a big passion of mine. Aww. What is important to you when you're creating a dish? That I can express the love that I feel for my own family and my food through my food to other people. Mm. So I want them to feel, you know, happy, everything tastes good, but still keeping the importance and isolating flavors that are traditional um, from our pre-contact foods as well. Mm, pre-contact foods, yummy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Aisha, why did you want to call the episode the root of it? Um, I wanted it to be called that because there's a lot of roots that are associated with our foods. So everything has a root when it grows. 
we are rooted as a people in the lands that we come from. And then I think we're all rooted together as a family. So when you think about roots in the ground, it stems from one place, but then goes all over the place, but it's still connected. So I kind of like that thought. And then also there's roots that are medicine, roots that are food. And I also wanted to get to the root of the perception of what indigenous foods are as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's more than just, you know, bannock or something like that. There's, there's so many other options and mm -hmm. I just wanted to expand people's visions of what they could be eating and mm -hmm. get to the root of people's eating habits as well. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Okay. It smells amazing. So I'm going to add some honey in now because we're starting to boil. A boil. Mm -hmm. While that sweet grass tea is boiling, let's step away from the kitchen for a moment and meet other foodies making a difference in their diets. By the way, if you want to watch the cooking video and the recipe for any of the foods we're preparing today, head to our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved. When Aisha's not with us in the CBC studio, you can find her in her community of six nations of the Grand River. That's where she met others who share her passion for food. Chandra Miracle is one of those people. She says a traditional Haudenosaunee approach to food is an essential part of healthy living. Chandra's research focuses on the nutritional qualities of pre-contact food, especially as it relates to motherhood. She educates moms and moms-to-be about how pre-contact food, like corn, can nourish the body and baby. When you look at the dominant culture, it's death culture. It's not life-supporting. It doesn't offer ways to live in peace and harmony with yourself, your family, your community, your nations. Look at the whole planet right now. Every, everything is a big struggle. So I think any indigenous thought philosophy, but you know, certainly I've been thinking about the Haudenosaunee one for about 33 years. It's because it has so many life-supporting principles. It has so much to offer for people wanting to live with peace in your minds and with health and wellness within yourself and within your family and your community. So in a Haudenosaunee context, it's always focused on community because uh, even traditionally, that's that's who the, the Haudenosaunee were, people who, who built these, these large houses that could be extended. And why do you extend your house? To bring in more people, to bring in more family and treat everyone like family. So community is, is a really important concept. And, and how did you show any thought and philosophy? Hey, I am Chandra Francis Miracle, and my community is like all over the place. I don't know, I was born and raised in Buffalo, lived in Fort Erie, lived at Six Nations for 20 years. I don't know, my father's family is from Tyndanaga. I'm sitting in Burlington right now. <laughs> I'm all over the place. We are in a really uh, advantageous spot on the planet in Haudenosaunee territory. It just so happens that uh, traditional homelands were really robust, uh, very fertile soil, and the, the landscape provided just such an abundance, an array of foods. 
So certainly uh, we think of corn a lot and uh, along with beans and squash and other cultivated foods that are that come from a, a Haudenosaunee landscape uh, grow quite nicely. Venison or uh, deer meat is one uh, that comes to mind in a Haudenosaunee context. Um, all manner of you know, nuts and seeds and berries, salmon and all kinds of varieties of fish. Um, but pretty much if it was if it was running around or swimming around, uh, it was fair game. But today, that's where the problem comes in. So we've kind of as a society gotten so far away from eating foods that are, are closest to their state when they come from the earth, that we have to go out of our way to think of things like, well, which foods should we be eating in postpartum compared to which foods do we just eat regularly any day anyway? Because if we're eating warm, nourishing, really high nutrient dense foods anyway, we wouldn't really have to single those out. So it's kind of funny that we're, we're almost saying that new moms should eat special foods when really what we're saying is that they should, they should be fed. They shouldn't have to feed that food to themselves. They should be able to rest and the people around them are the ones that are coming together and helping to provide those foods. And then of course we want the most nutrient dense foods that we can find for a, a mom's body as she's kind of in a, in a recovery period. But that keeps going. So part of this is extending the definition of what the postpartum period is. Right now, for some reason, we have this idea that postpartum is six weeks. That That is a society gone insane to think that we are only postpartum for six weeks, that our bodies somehow that have been living these modern uh, nutrient deficient lifestyles only need six weeks to recover. So part of this, even though my focus, of course, is food, it's a totality of nourishment. It's not just about saying, oh, here, eat this food and you'll be fine. It's putting it in a context of community care and community revitalization. So I would say that the advice for Indigenous women anywhere would be to start by looking at your traditional diets in general. And then we can see if there's anything specific that we need to pull out in a postpartum period. As long as they're in highly nutrient dense, which most indigenous foods are anyway. And, you know, it's funny because I've, I've done it five times, you know, and um, so I asked my midwife in my first pregnancy, um, I said, you know, everybody says that in pregnancy, you need calcium. And everybody's saying, well, where are we taught in North America that you get calcium from? The best way to get calcium is milk. And that's usually saying cow's milk. There's, there's this thing about milk and cheese and you know dairy, all manner of dairy, right? That's what you have to have because you have to have calcium. But that didn't exist here before. And because I knew that we had thriving societies prior to colonization, so I said, "What what would we have had that had this you know this so-called calcium that we needed?" And you know, one of our highest sources of calcium 
is our traditionally prepared corn. So when corn has gone through the process that we know is the best way to prepare it, which in Haudenosaunee territory, we simply call it lime, L-Y-E, to lye corn. And that is done when a, a chemical reaction takes place. And we do that by adding hardwood ashes to boiling water and then cooking the corn in that. And it's just this fabulous, fascinating alchemical process. It's just magical. And it, it does a whole bunch of cool stuff to the corn. Like it, it increases the calcium content. It makes the nutrients in that more bioavailable, meaning that it will make it so that your body can more easily, easily absorb and digest um, once you've done that process. So there is a perfect example of traditional knowledge being applied, you know, to food, increasing the nutrition. One of the things that everybody's realized that we're really lacking in our, our modern North American diets is good quality fat. And a lot of things in a traditional diet or a diet which brings foods closest to the earth and unprocessed, you know, and, and prepared only in ways that are necessary in order for them to be able to be eaten, um, then we, we have a whole lot of things within a traditional landscape that have high quality fats. Why would you need high quality fats? Well, number one, that is good for the brain. So for me, it was, it was no coincidence to see that we had a lot of good things that had high quality fats in them from a society and a culture which has, it's one of its underpinnings, the concept of or good-mindedness. So you literally feed good-mindedness and then you metaphorically feed good-mindedness. And one of the ways you literally do that is by foods that are nutrient-dense and contain a lot of good quality fats. I'm not really an advocate of, uh, you know, glorifying the past or romanticizing things and thinking that we have to go back because we don't go backwards as human beings. Naturally, we evolve, we go forward. So we have to go forward in our thinking, but thinking how we can keep intact that underlying principle of nourishment, which again, isn't just about food, but for me, that for many years, took up most of the occupation of my mind was food. Every day I woke up and the first thing I thought about was, what am I eating? What are my children eating? What am I feeding the people around, around me? How am I getting this food? How am I preparing it? How am I cleaning up after it? And how am I gonna do it all again tomorrow? And the next day and the next day, like forever. So because it's just, you know, simply one of these things that we need as human beings, we have to do it all the time. And some people see that as a burden. And if you're kind of creative and you know you love life, then you could see that as being really fun. You know, I get to do this every single day. Every day I get to be supported and nourished and loved by the earth and the people around me. And I get to care for the people around me. And I get to do that through food because we have to do it every day. But that is not easy when you've got 
a bunch of little mouths around you. <laughs> you know, they can't feed themselves and you're the one that, that's responsible for doing that. And it can become burdensome, exhausting. And this is why I think the industry, <laughs> the food industry, you know, is so big and everybody's trying to figure this out. How do we do this? And indigenous context, we've got extra things to think about. We have exorbitant rates of all of the, the ill health markers. And then we also just, a lot of times we, we just carry this idea of that we want the culture in our communities to continue. And one of the best ways that we can cover all bases is through food, because we're gonna cover our health and our wellness and our community and society and also cultural continuity for food. Chandra Maricol is a mother, homemaker, and educator. She is Tyandanaga Mohawk, living in the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. Speaking of corn, let's head back into the kitchen, where Aisha showed me how to prepare a lied corn parfait. Mmm, parfait. And do you want to give that a stir for me, Rosanna? Sure. Awesome, thank you. So we're going to start with our corn. If you want to add that, you can. I Look just, at me, I'm cooking. Yeah, so <laughs> little baby strawberries. Go ahead and just add, you know, a little scoop of the blueberries. A scoop of the blueberries. Blueberries, yeah. how I love some blueberries. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Spoons out. I didn't mix it enough. So right now we're making a lied corn berry parfait. This is the Haudenosaunee white corn and we lie it through a wood ash process. So we take a hardwood like maple, burn it down, and then we sift out the bigger chunks of the ash just to get the, you know, the fine powder. You put, uh, I'd say a cup of that to two cups of corn but you let the water boil, add your ash, and then add the corn. It takes the outer hull off, which is pretty tough, and it actually imparts more calcium into the corn because traditionally we never had any Eurasian animals. That all mm. came with colonization. So there were no cows. That's not how we originally got our calcium sources from. So it came from generally plants. Yeah. And this was one of the ways that Haudenosaunee people did it. Um, so I love corn. <laughs> it's a really big deal on the res. And then we're just gonna add some fresh berries inside of there and also maple syrup, which is a natural sugar source instead of a white processed sugar. Mm -hmm. um, with my foods, I try not to use flour or white sugars and stuff like that a lot. So we have some blueberries, we have raspberries, we have strawberries, we have pumpkin seeds, some fresh mint, and then this is our maple. And you literally just mix it all up and that's that. Wow. And you can serve it in a little glass with some mint. And is this a recipe that you came up with yourself as well? Um, one of my friends showed it to me, actually. So throughout my culinary career, I've learned a lot from different people in my community. Mm -hmm. And they've all just, you know, showed me different things and shared those things with me. And I think that's a part of the root of it as well. Right. Now, one of the other things that you're very passionate about is food sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Explain to us what that is. So food sovereignty to me is telling the truth about our pre-contact foods and also incorporating the history 
that we come from and that our government has participated in as well because all of those factors led us to where we are today in our present food state amongst indigenous peoples. Uh, when we were put on reservations, that's when we got pulled away from our natural food systems. There was no going out and foraging. You weren't allowed to leave the reserve. You had to have permission. So all of those things affected generations after that as well because it took away that bonding that you have as a family when you go and do those things together, when you take younger generations out to go hunting, teach them what to do, when the right season for certain foods is. So I think that's what food sovereignty is. It's, it's the truth and it's also sharing where we are today and bringing traditions back or finding your own traditions in present day with pre-contact foods. So I think of our foods as like a big vast ingredient list and I just put them together how I don't know who tells me but somebody does <laughs> from up there yeah. and that's that's where I come from and I think everybody's path to food sovereignty is also different um, there's many paths that lead to the same destination and each person has their own path mm -hmm. um, so one person's definition of food sovereignty might be different from mine and that's perfectly okay and I'm happy about that actually. The more people that are excited about food sovereignty, the the many different minds that are working towards the same goal is is really important for our next generation. Mm. That's amazing. I love the the idea or, or the vision. I can almost see your ancestors behind you with their spoons and their <laughs> you know, little yeah. aprons and chef hats. Whispering. It feels like Put it. some more maple syrup. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. What are we cooking next? Let's keep cooking. So next we're going to clear this off and then we're going to start the pasta and the sauce. Yum. Yes. All right. Let's do it. Okay. Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson and I'm the host of Front Burner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. How many tomatoes? That's uh, three, like, smallish, medium, one big guy. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, we are chefing it up, pre-colonial style. Coming up, we'll dig into a sister salmon cannelloni. It's called sister salmon because the recipe uses one of the three sisters of indigenous agriculture, corn, bean, and squash. But first, let's meet another Six Nations foodie who combines her work as a dietitian with the traditional food knowledge of her ancestors. Deo Widrant Morrow is a Haudenosaunee dietitian and the chair of the Aboriginal Nutrition Network of Dietitians of Canada. That's a mouthful. But for years, she has been concerned about how often we're eating foods introduced by settlers, things like white flour, milk, and sugar. And so she set out to decolonize diets and return people to nation-specific eating based on the uniqueness of land, culture, and traditions. Deo, welcome to Unreserved. Hi, Scano. Deo, we drop in you up, Senate. I'll talk you on in you. We'll get shout in. Kai Kononi Wak Wenzeden. Agogwini. So nice to meet you, Rosanna. Very nice to meet you as well. 
Now, before we talk about what it takes to decolonize our diets, how would you describe a colonized diet? I think anything that's just not fulfilling you. You're not learning. There's no reciprocal relationship. You're not investing in it. It's unable to invest in you. Bombarding, overbearing, you know, things like that just are not loving, giving, filling, and nurturing in that way. As you were growing up, what kinds of foods did you eat as a kid? Oh, man, food was never a central space for us. And we did have a lot of takeout because my parents kept us very busy. We we did do lacrosse and hockey growing up and multiple after-school activities. And it was always buying fast food, always the big pizzas and, you know, buckets of chicken. And it was super flavorful because those types of foods, they're full of sugar, fat, and salt. Mm-hmm. My young brain, it's just sending off all these amazing signals of this is fantastic. They, you know, they go to the top bar with as much sodium and fat are in there because they know how it triggers our brains. So, yeah. A lot of the things that, that you listed just there, you know, those are all things that you, you would find in an Indigenous kitchen. What's the problem with, um, you know, eating those kinds of foods, you know, long term? Well, I, again, it's just that they are very preserved. There's a lot of salt, sugar, and fat. So if you're starting um, from a young age to introduce those types of foods, you're not building that kind of tolerance that um, is typically built with, you know, moderation, right? Because if that's what we rely on are those, you know, heavily laden preserved type foods and foods that give us that kind of instant gratification, like a lot of the fast food does, you're getting that super high every meal, even as a small child, you're, you're not allowed to build a tolerance to that. So things have to be saltier, they have to be fattier, they have to be tastier in that way, as you grow up. So mm. it could contribute to you eating more out of setting, um, or, you know, more of the wrong types of foods, and just removing moderation from your diet and being considerate of balance. You know, because we can't always eat things because they give us that gratification. There has to be other aspects to it. Like I said, like love, nurturing, a reciprocal relationship. I'm eating these beans because I cared for them and they're nurturing the soil. And and typically those other types of foods that are um, heavily laden with salt, fat and sugar, they just don't carry that same responsibility. And of course, they have negative effects on body, right? You get diabetes, you get... Yeah, a lot of other things play into that. But of course, your food choices are extremely important and the activity levels. A traditional diet means that we're on the land. It means that we're on the water. It means we're moving, right? We're mindful of the environment that surrounds us. And that's that action and ability that your body needs. Mm -hmm. When did you start uh, moving away from those colonized kind of foods and moving towards a more traditional diet? I moved more in a balance. That's what I'll say. Because I will still be in the McDonald's line. <laughs> when I first saw one of the major effects of my sister had started to um, change one of her children's diet because they had celiac. It was inspiring because I saw that once she removed those foods that my niece could start to think more clearly and she started to communicate more effectively and to you know, kind of progress. And my sister had did that all on her own. There was no health system that understood or supported her. So that was inspiring to me. I stepped into dietetics and studying at Brescia uh, University College, which is tied to University of Western Ontario. 
and just kind of went from there. And as I started to walk in that path, I was lucky enough to have a mentor, um, Bernadette de Gonzagu, who's an Indigenous dietitian that worked at one of the Aboriginal Health Access Centres in London. And she just always brought me in there with her and um, Nikki George and another Indigenous dietitian. And we we learned together. They they brought me in as a volunteer and then they started writing grants and had me there and part of the traditional healing program because they really worked collaboratively with mm. the traditional healing and the primary care, um, which is typically the nurses and the doctors in frontline healthcare at the Aboriginal Health Access Centre. So they really did support each other very, very well. And that's when I started understanding that you can bring who you are into what you're doing in dietetics. Mm. You had mentioned that your sister was constructing this diet around her her celiac uh, child. Is that what led you to be so passionate about decolonizing uh, the diet or was that something that came as you walked the path that you just described? Yeah, it was both. I'd say that was a huge catalyst because like, again, I saw how the instant effect of that change in food and diet affected her ability to concentrate mm-hmm. and to be present, right? Because she wasn't fighting something inside of her body that was distracting her. And that mm-hmm. those are all cultural concepts as well, right? Like it's so important to be mindful. Mm-hmm. And Haudenosaunee culture teaches that you know, in our, our Thanksgiving address where we're talking about like all of the things that we see around us that we're thankful for, that we are acknowledging that we see ourselves in. And those types of teachings is what really paired with what my sister was doing. She was the action. And that was the theory, I guess, right? Mm. I started in an Aboriginal health center in Hamilton and Brantford at the AHAC there as a dietitian. And then When I'm sitting across from clients, it was really difficult because I was trying to, you know, relay the the beauty of our foods and the importance of it, and as well as the nutritional impact um, for their nutrition care plans. But it just wasn't being reciprocated because it seemed so far away. So it was like, right now I'm just saying, yeah, I have to get on the land. I have to get out and communicate with people that are doing these things, growing our traditional foods harvesting our traditional foods, hunting our traditional foods and fishing, you know, for our traditional foods. And that was my main goal as a dietitian for the last 10 years. That's what I've been able to do, which is a, a huge blessing. Mm-hmm. And I've learned so much more in that that time frame than I think any of my education. Yeah, amazing. And you had said, you know, that you can bring who you are into the work you do as a Haudenosaunee person. How did you incorporate those perspectives and those ways of eating and being on the land in your work? Yeah, so I think the most prominent one for me was really recognizing what what I called like a nation-based type diet. We changed the Aboriginal Nutrition Network. We just changed it to the Indigenous Nutrition Knowledge and Information Network. It's a long one, but (laughs) I shortened it to InKin. Nice. And I also wanted to give space to knowledge sharers. Like I said, that it's not all of those people that I work with are dietitians or medical health professionals. And I wanted our dietitians to understand that, that it's okay to be humble and to step back and let other people that have knowledge collaborate with you and to provide that care. So I had a lot of um, dietitians, indigenous and non that were reaching out and saying like, you know, I only have 
um, Canada's Indigenous Food Guide, which was basically the political food guide with people with brown hair and braids and maybe a moose. You know, I said, just take it to where you need to take it and understand that you're going to learn when you go into these communities about their foods and what they have access to. So seasonally, we eat certain ways and our people follow it's not a seasonal food guide, but it's our cycle of ceremonies, which in essence is how we give thanks and honor and have a relationship with these foods. It happens at certain times throughout the year. It's because it's available at that time. And we're encouraging, we're giving it words of um, encouragement. We're giving it words of thanks. We're helping it along its way to flourish. And it's not just for us, it's for the entire environment around it, but we also understand that it can nourish us. Can you give an example of, you know, what kinds of food might go with different times of the year? Let's say the new year, right? People from a Western or Gregorian kind of context would think of it as January 1st. Um, for our people, that's kind of a resting phase. And, um, and then once we do that, we build ourselves back up again we get ready to go out to collect the saps. And that's the beginning of the new year for us. Our people really understood that the maple tree gives a lot of sugar with less, not less work, but less energy input. So really you're getting the biggest bang for your buck by getting sap from a maple tree because it gives such a high sugar volume out of it. Mm. Well, we're just uh, coming out of autumn, <laughs> fall time and going into winter. What kinds of things are you harvesting and eating right now? Right now would be the winter squashes. And we're just pulling off of our traditional corn too. And what, what I always tell my clients, you don't have to be like all out and all in and do it all in order to be an indigenous food person, right? Like you can just pick a few foods and do them really, really well and give them the full respect from every single part of them that should be utilized the way our ancestors did do it, right? Very resourceful. Yeah. Um, now, as a registered dietitian in Canada, you, you of course have to work within you know, government regulated systems, whatever that means. And as a Haudenosaunee dietitian, in what ways are you uh, negotiating that or, you know, working within that? Yes, they tried to do a revamp in 2019 of Canada's Food Guide, and then they had a bunch of us experts come to um, talk about, like, what should we be doing going forward? What would you like to see with the Indigenous? And we just said, we don't want to see it. Mm. The money that's going into the development of this should be split between the nations to develop their own traditional food guides. Let them tell you what they're eating and when they're eating it. And then you'll be informed and educated, create whatever they want created. If it's a oral story about it, then create it. It's it's not necessarily that piece of paper that you want, you know, others to walk into their communities with. And that's what I get asked in the profession as somebody that leads, you know, the Indigenous network is that, that they're not eating that. I don't know what to tell them, right? Well, mm -hmm. they'll tell you. Right. And then we just need a collective voice. So I do work um, in collaboration with other dietetic um, networks. So I think that's really a great opportunity to make those structural changes. Since you, you started this work 10 years uh, doing this, uh, this shift towards traditional foods, is there a person or a story that comes to mind when you think of 
you know, the positive influence of a decolonized diet? Um, I think the work that I did in Northern Ontario with the Pekanjikum First Nation, the student nutrition program there had gotten uh, Ontario Trillium grant. And really how that started was I had a colleague that saw me speak in Thunder Bay, and she was from Breakfast Clubs of Canada that supply a lot of the northern schools with either their food packages or sometimes it's like money for food to purchase from like the northern stores, etc. But what she wanted to do from what she heard me say was look at how they could kind of change up the requirements in a way that would be more friendly to Pekanjikam and the money that Breakfast Clubs was providing for their food. So we did a whole event up there where we worked with um, a lot of the amazing women that just come in there from the community and they cook, they cook for 700 people, you know, two times a day, they're providing a breakfast, they're making snacks, and then they're doing the lunch. And then having the women have their say of what they like to cook and what they didn't want to cook because some things were foreign to them. So those were great communication and collaboration that I saw between the organization and, and the people there actually doing the work. And then they got that Trillium grant. And then the recommendation was to bring more traditional foods on their nutrition plan, which was beautiful. And to think about like the reach that if they're feeding 700 people, because like I said, it wasn't just the kids, the teachers were eating there because they're flying communities. You're really you're there, right? There's nowhere else mm. to go. You know, people would come there and eat those those meals every day. And now they had these traditional foods that were welcomed, you know. And the other part of that too, which to make it sustainable and um, impactful from the funder's perspective was that the Ontario Trillium Foundation allowed me to be able to create an Indigenous-focused lens to how that program would be evaluated to ensure it had the full effect of what those foods meant to us evaluated, as well as the sustainability of the use of those foods. Mm -hmm. That was one of the most impactful ones for me. Mm. Well, Dale, thank you so much for this uh, time and this uh, wonderful conversation today. Thank you. Dale Widrot Morrow is a Haudenosaunee dietitian and the chair of the Aboriginal Nutrition Network of Dietitians of Canada. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. We head back into the kitchen with Aisha Smith-Belgaba. Now, where did I put that apron? And then we're going to go in with our onion. Maybe back up a little bit, just in case. Okay. We're going in with our onion. Next on the menu... Sister Salmon Cannelloni. Okay. So we have our tomatoes. We're going to add another one, I'd say. I don't really use recipes when I cook. I just go with the flow of things. So that's why I gave you the recipe outside of here. For those of you who need more strict guidelines, the less guidelines for me is the better. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that. Yeah. So we're going to let this go. We are going to add our squash in. So we have our butternut squash. We have basil stems with a couple of leaves. Basil stems actually have more flavor than the leaves. So if you want to infuse a stock or a sauce faster, use the stems. They don't blend well, so pull them out after. Good Um, to know. And then we have our tomatoes. We have garlic, onion, salt, pepper, olive oil, and some water. 
It's very straightforward. Mm -hmm. And the thickness, the creaminess, the velvetness that normally comes from cream or butter would be you. This is the butternut squash, so it's in the name kind Straight of already. It's already in the name. <laughs> already in yes, the name. Yes. You can add cream, you can add butter. It's to your own preference. But today, we're keeping it straightforward, nice and natural. Now, earlier you mentioned um, food sovereignty and you know uh, pre-contact ingredients. How did you learn to incorporate pre-contact ingredients into your <laughs> cooking? I used to, I had a culinary business and I had clients that were asking me for indigenous foods, pre-contact foods, and I really didn't know what that even meant at the time. So we're just gonna add some salt. So I did a lot of research. I reached out to different community members. Um, and then I started doing research about plants and animals that were here before colonization. And then that's how I simplified it in my mind by saying, these are ingredients. Don't freak out. Everything's cool. It's fine. So that's how I did that. And then I just keep developing over the years, the different people I meet, different locations I go to. Every day is a, a, is a day to learn. Mm. So when I speak to different people, I'm always asking questions and I learn on the fly while doing things. So if I went to your house, I'd be in the kitchen with you, mm. bugging you, but I'd be helping you. <laughs> so that's how I learned and that's how I spent, like my childhood was in kitchens with people just helping out and watching. Mm. What kind of barriers did you have to overcome in, in doing this kind of thing? I think I had to um, not be so afraid. I started, I think, when I was 25. So I was about 25 years old, and I really didn't know what pre-contact foods meant. So I was kind of embarrassed and ashamed, and I was afraid to ask people because I felt like I should have already know, especially since I grew up on the reserve my whole life. But mm -hmm. everyone has different lifestyles in their own household and I just wasn't raised that way that much. Uh, we did do some foraging but I didn't understand the vastness of it. Um, so I'd say myself was one of the barriers and I always like to tell people that I don't know everything and this is still a, a learning journey for me and as I learn I welcome people along the way to come share with me. Hmm. Well this is starting to, to bubble up. Yeah and we're gonna add some water. And you just let it simmer until everything's blended well together. You pull out those stems and you throw it into a blender and voila, everything's done. That's unreserved producer and chef Aisha Smith-Belgaba putting together a sauce for our sister salmon cannelloni. If you want to see how she puts it all together, go to our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved. That's where you'll find a video of Aisha and I preparing all three of today's menu items. While the sauce bubbles, we've moved on to the salmon pasta filling. So we're going to put our ricotta in this bowl. And a little goes a long way, but if you're making a whole bunch, obviously increase how much you're using. There. And then we're going to go in with the salmon. See, it's like really quite pasty yes. and it, it solidifies and pulls together once it gets cooked. It's really cool, I think. <laughs> <laughs> then we're gonna get some fresh dill. And we just want the dill fronds. We don't really want the stems or anything. It's a little bit too chunky for the filling. We right. want it to have a nice mouthfeel. So 
did you say mouthfeel? Yeah. Mouthfeel. 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 Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be nice for the mouth, too. For the eyes, the mouth, nose, ears. It's all holistic. Yeah, all the mm -hmm. things. Mm, all the things. And then we're going to grab our knife. Make sure your knuckles are flat to the blade so we're not chopping them off. And <laughs> you, you just rock. And then you'll get like a little fine bunch of dill, our lemon, and just do this slightest little amount of juice. We're gonna give it a little, just a little zest. And I'm gonna give this its initial mix and then just see what else I think it might need. What the ancestors are whispering. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so now we're gonna get into the rolling. We're just gonna take our pasta sheet, Mine's not as perfect as yours, but you know. No, that's my okay. First, it's my first cantaloupe. Yeah, every, <laughs> everything's beautiful. Everything is beautiful. It's gonna be fat. <laughs> I call that one. <laughs> that one's gonna be a cigar. <laughs> this is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild in the kitchen in the CBC Toronto studio. You can join the fun by finding our cooking video at cbc.ca slash unreserved. All the recipes are there for you. The sweetgrass tea, the live corn berry parfait, and the sister salmon cannelloni. Now, Aisha, earlier you talked about uh, food sovereignty, mm -hmm. you talked about uh, indigenous ingredients, pre-contact, uh, and as you said, everybody has their own path to these things. But what do you think is the common element between all of those paths? I think the common element is family, really, because I feel a lot of people want to participate in food sovereignty and share their information and educate others because they're thinking about their family in the future. They're thinking about the next generations and they wanna make an easier path for them, a healthier path. And I think that that's really important. And also people wanna provide good lives for their families and what better way to do that than through food sovereignty. Mm. Um, we're just waiting for the pasta to, to cook. That shouldn't take too long. How long no. does that usually take? Um, a couple of minutes. You just gotta watch, make sure the color of the salmon changes to a lighter color pink, and then check the noodle with a little fork. Mm -hmm. And once it's done, it's done. Hmm. Then you sauce it up. Smells amazing. Now you're gonna share some, and of course we got the, the fruit parfait. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yum, yum. And the sweet grass tea. Yeah. <sighs> My tummy is literally <laughs> grumbling right now. When you're gonna give us some plating tips. Yeah, so I'm just gonna start off with the drink. So our sweet grass sweet tea. You could add ice in here, you could chill it down, but we're gonna have it warm today. You just cut an orange into a circle and then you do a little slice. So then it can go around the rim of your cup. And then for our berry parfait, we have what we had mixed up earlier. I'm gonna just put some blues on the bottom. 
And then some more raz on top. Razzle dazzle. Razzle dazzle. And then a cool little trick is to just fan a strawberry. You take your strawberry and then you just start slicing on a little angle. And make sure you don't cut all the way around, otherwise your fan won't fan, it'll break. <laughs> but the more you practice it, the more you can do it. And then you just have a little garnish. And then we're gonna grab the cutest mint, which is this little piece right here. Right on the top, yeah. Yep. And I'm gonna work on the pasta now. So, obviously you don't have to be extra and do it on a piece of walnut board, but <laughs> if you just so happen to have We're a board, <laughs> you can put it on a board. Same concepts apply. So we're gonna take our sauce, and you can see it's super creamy, nice mm -hmm. and thick, very fragrant. Smells amazing. So pretty. I'm sure this is exactly how our ancestors ate. <laughs> uh, on a board, I'm absolutely, absolutely positive of it. <laughs> so then we're gonna just do a little extra on top. Then take a pinch of the chili flakes mm -hmm. and then just do 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 do. Garnish with your heart, guys. Garnish, Garnish with, with your, your heart. heart. Yes. And that's that's, that's it. That's cooking with Aisha. Yeah, that's it. Beautiful. So we have our beautiful cannelloni, sister salmon cannelloni, and we have our parfait. And our sweetgrass sweet tea. Mm -hmm. So we're going to enjoy. Yeah. Be jealous. Yes. <laughs> Please enjoy at home as well. Let's dig in. Good. Okay. Aisha Smith Belgaba, Mohawk and Algerian from Six Nations. She's an associate producer with Unreserved and a trained chef. It looks beautiful. What is that mouth feeling you were talking about? Oh, my mouth is so happy with mine right now. Come on, guys. Gather around. Go ahead, just grab whatever. As all our time on Radio Indigenous, watch our cooking video, try the recipes. You can find it all on our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved. Download the podcast from the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This episode was produced by Kim Kasher, Aisha Smith-Belgaba, Zoe Tennant, Laura Bonestubing, and Rhiannon Johnson. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.